Our guest today is Angela Santamero, co-created the award-winning children's television series, Blue's Clues, manifesting as television episodes, authored books, even Paramount movies, live shows at Radio City Music Hall, and countless spinoffs. And this extraordinary opportunity became the guiding light of her life's mission, to utilize her knowledge of kids, media, and education to change lives for the better. And she went on to create Super Y Super Readers, empowering young minds with the power to read, which was on PBS, and Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, again on PBS, a heartfelt tribute to the legacy of her mentor, Fred Rogers, from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, Angela doesn't let grass grow under her feet, as she also created Creative Galaxy, and emerged as an endeavor to nurture kids' artistic inclinations, while Wish and Poof aimed to empower children through captivating anthems. In Angela's newest series, Dee and, and Friends in Oz, a magical, musical retelling of the infamous Wizard of Oz story through the eyes of a preschooler, will premiere on Netflix February 2024. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome children's television super creator and now author of Life, Life's Clues, the one and the only Angela Santamero to the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I will say this. I absolutely enjoyed your book so much to the point to where I started practicing some of those life clues that you wrote about. But I've got to ask you, what did Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood mean to you growing up? Oh my God, you're going to make me cry right at the beginning. <laughs> I, am, I was that four-year-old, right, who really uh, loved the show, loved talking literally directly to him. I really felt like the show was written just for me. And I thought that all of the lessons and everything that he talked about, I was just so keyed in. Um, and as I got older, I realized that that's such a gift, right, to have uh, media have that have the ability to teach and to make you feel a certain way, right? Feel empowered and feel like I believed him that he said he liked me just the way that I was. Well, what you know, what did it mean to you personally when Fred Rogers told you that he was proud of you and Blues Clues? Yeah, that was one of those moments, I think, for my life will go down in history. That feeling that, you know, I literally went into the business because I wanted to do what he did for at least one child, right? And so being able to tell him that myself and have him know Blue's Clues and know the work and see the child development theory in it was just, I was just blown away and got invited to go to his set and watch him work. It was magical. And, you know, we became friends in the sense of having this back and forth about what we were trying to do for kids. So it was, it was a dream, you know, creating Daniel Tiger in his legacy was also, you know, one of those dreams that just want to keep promoting what he was all about. Well, you know, your book is not only a fantastic read and ladies and gentlemen, if you need to kind of a pick me up to, you know, to live life with great meaning and purpose and maybe find your own clues in life. This is the book to get. And Angela, what I, one of the elements that I loved was that you took us behind the scenes a bit. I was actually amazed with uh, children's television programming that it wasn't just a bunch of people sitting around dream, dreaming up crazy ideas. 
these are educated people that understood how to reach children at their level. And that, that was kind of a surprise to me uh, because there is an art to television, as you know, but there's also a bit of a science to it as well. And you really brought that into your book. Uh, why did you kind of give us that behind the scenes look like that? You know, I, I do find that people don't necessarily always see that level of thought and work and how much educational TV can really influence kids positively, obviously, if it's educational, but also there's that negative aspect that is talked about a lot about the negative effects of TV. And so I really wanted to talk about content in general. And the team that I've worked with for 20 plus years have that specific vision and mission. And most of them have a background in either um, in expertise in kids and kids writing or what I love is getting a lot of people who have a master's in child development like I do, just so that we can talk about how to make sure that everything that we want to put into all of our shows actually is in them and that kids can take away the lessons and learn. So there's a research base, there's a creative, there's a humor, there's an entertaining basis, of course. But at the end of the day, we do want to make sure that we're moving that needle with all of the shows that we've that we've done. You know, I like the way that you used the example of Blue's Clues in this book. And I love the story in which, in the very beginning, when you had written this, you had written the concept of this series. And, and then to go in and then you film a test episode. And of course, your test audience is a bunch of kids. And then the network, they're like, okay, something not right here. But... You took it upon yourself to actually f film the kids' reactions, which I thought was a brilliant move because kids think differently than adults. And the way that you used the pa the power of the pause uh, in Blue's Clues, no, no pun intended, but the power of the pause was really that magical moment that made this show a success, correct? I think so. I think there are a lot. The stars were definitely aligned in terms of the way that the show came together and how much passion we all have. But that level of being able to have Steve Burns, who was our original actor, lean into the camera and like Fred, elicit that response because he was listening to kids was completely magical. And that sense of this four beat pause that we were doing really did give the network a little bit of a pause. <laughs> in a negative way, in the sense that they weren't sure if, you know, why we were spending so, you know what I mean, like all of this negative airspace. And so we had to show how the viewer was going to respond. And we just, you know, when you do something different, um, you have to prove it, you know, you have to really kind of do that extra mile. And so showing the audience and showing how much they laughed and engaged and leaned in and screamed, you know, answers to our questions was just kind of the tipping point was that pivotal moment for us. Well, I've, I've got to ask you a quick question on the technical side, because you said something, you alluded to it in the book. With Blue's Clues, there's the power of the pause. How long was the pause? How long was the pause versus a pause in which all of us in media would go dead air? What's yeah. the difference in length? Yeah. It's at, at the beginning, it was, this is our secret sauce. I'm not going to reveal all of that, but no, it's that for the little ones, um, it's about a four 
second pause. It's a four beat pause. And it's not just the pause. It's giving that space so that you're not doing this or looking somewhere else. You're literally waiting for somebody, the child to answer you, right? You're invested in their answer. And so the way in which Steve direct was directed and the way in which he was able to portray that really engaged kids to kind of come out and tell us what they think. And I think that that dead air in life is something that we kind of have a hard time with, right? We don't want any sort of negative airspace. And so we jump in to, to answer. And if we do remember to wait or have the patience to wait or the understanding to wait, um, everyone gives us just amazing, you know, answers because it's their point of view. And if they're three, their answers are, should be celebrated, right? Well, how do we use the power of the pause to our advantage as adults? Uh, I think it, you know, I think it's one of those like saving moments of a marriage too. You know, it's like being able to ask a very pointed question and just give it that space. You know, we've also had, you know, when you're arguing or when you're talking or you're debating, right, most of the time we're thinking about the next thing we're going to say as opposed to attentive listening. And all of the all of the research tells us that if we're actually in the moment and attentively listening, it's going to shorten, even though there's more time in between as a pause, it's going to shorten the length of time to get to the point and to make sure that you're, you know, meeting in whatever it is, it's a negotiation or seeing eye to eye, but you're really kind of listening. That attentive listening is the key. Well, in your book, you wrote, the more I trusted my gut and my heart, the more serendipity showed up in my life. Explain. You know, I think that we're, I, I talk about it in the book too, that I'm a people pleaser. I, you know, literally always wanted to just make sure that I am giving the answer that other people are, are looking for. And the more that I resisted that and really knew, right, I used to talk about, I read everything and was around, I was around kids my whole life. And when I knew what I knew and trusted that, all of a sudden doors would open. Um, and way more so than when you're just, you know, pleasing and you go a little bit further, a little bit further. But when you're really trusting your gut and you're coming from this place of passion, I met the right people that would help. You know, I didn't have to know all of the answers. Um, I could be vulnerable and say, you know, tell me more. You know, the, all of those things that you do um, that would help to to nourish and, you know, keep a, a relationship going. And so that was even on camera in the way that we wrote for kids, but also with my team in the way that we respected um, each other and having that trust of your gut and what you're, you're trying to say and do is really something that I found very useful. Yeah, I found it very helpful in your book by all of us in conversation. It's taking that pause to collect our thoughts and in a way to save us. Uh, even, de even, even deleting an email that maybe we should not send. Uh, and I guess in today's world, even with social media, maybe we should hit delete before we comment because in the end, sometimes it doesn't matter, especially in social media. It's here today, gone, gone in a second. Um, so that pause can keep us out of trouble. Yeah. I mean, your immediate response sometimes is an emotional one, right? And so, yes, of course, we all have our emotions and we label them. It doesn't necessarily need to be thrown out into the world because at the end of the day, what are we trying to say? What are we trying to do? Um, even add to cart, you know, after this holiday season, buying and, you know, just wanting to get things done or going through it, but being able to have those endorphins of adding to the cart and taking a minute 
to just double check that you really need this. Um, and it's something I have to remind myself to do, right? It's not, it's not easy um, for any of us. You know, I talk to a lot of people, not on the interview side of things, but just in general conversation, uh, maybe going back and forth with friends and people you know on social media. And I find that a lot of people seem to be, I guess, um, insecure. Uh, maybe they're negative about themselves. And I love the way that you explained in your book that we should appreciate ourselves. Why should we appreciate ourselves? You know, so many reasons. I think it's kind of, for me, it's the core of self-care. It's the core of trying to accept um, our point of view about things, right? Trying to give ourselves a break, not to be a perfectionist, not to try to do it all, you know, and to lean on other people. And we need people, you know, we need people to enrich us and enrich our lives. And so I just find it to be, you know, another important tool in our tool belt. You know, you have such an incredible career uh, in television. How, how would you describe um, your title? Would you call yourself a television producer or are you more of a television uh, creator? What category? You know, it, yeah, it's all of it because I'm a control freak, really, is type A. You know, so I create, I love the vision and the point of view and creating something, and then I don't want to let it go. So I'm writing, I'm producing, you know, you go all the way through. So yeah, executive producer, writer, creator, author. Yeah. <laughs> An author, that's right. Life's clues. And as I was getting uh, towards the end of the book, a thought hit me because I love this book. And one of the things that I loved, Angela, is that the simplicity in which you wrote. And they, they say that in advertising that uh, we have to keep things at a, a third grade level, just so everyone can understand it very, very quickly. Uh, but you kept this book in a very, uh, you wrote it in a very easy to read, simple matter that even for us adults, we can get it and we can get it pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I really wanted it to have a nurturing kind of uh, hug. Like I wanted people to feel that this is, I'm telling my story, I'm talking a little bit about what I feel is important for kids as they grow and realizing how much we let go of all this beautiful curiosity and imagination and you know asking questions as we get older and realizing that that's the fountain of youth, right? So I didn't want to feel luxury. I didn't want to dive too deep into all of my research, which I can. It's just the idea of all of us being able to have that shared language. And so I, I do believe in the elegances and the simplicity um, for for everything, really. Um, and so I just felt that that was, you know, the way in which I wanted it to go out in the world. But one of the chapters that I really loved and gravitated to we live in a world where everybody wants a voice. Everybody wants to be heard, but nobody is taking the time to listen. And you described, I think it was probably the very first meeting at Nickelodeon to be in the room with all of these creative people and everybody giving out their ideas. But you chose to sit there and listen, watch, in a way, read the room, and you kind of, you use that listen that power of listening to your advantage and 
in your Blue's Clues scripts, you followed two rules. What are they? And why is the power of listening so much more important? Well, right now in today's times. Uh, so many reasons, really. I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the ways in which we can be more kind. We can be a little bit more patient with each other. We can actually learn from each other when we have, when we have that space and that time and that ability to listen and observe. There's so many things that people say without saying them. Um, and there's so much more power in those leaders that I have witnessed who you know, ask the opinion of the other experts that are in the room and listen and understand. And then through her own lens, this was a Jerry Laybourne, the head of Nickelodeon, like through her own lens was able to then direct and have a point, you know what I mean? Have a point of view. And for me, you know, I was just so excited to be in that room and to understand what the business was about. What did it, what did they want? What did they need? Why did they need it? You know, all of those things, because all I wanted to do was to be able to create something that would be signature for kids that would elevate their level of education and kind of bring that play back. Um, and I knew that if I was able to listen to all of those experts, I could answer those questions. And so that's been the basis of a lot of what I do. Research is at the core of everything. We do formative research with kids. We don't have any ego about the work. You know, it's like, I don't care how long we've been doing this. We still learn from kids. We're still learning from everybody that we call in, consultants, experts, you know. And so being able to listen and understand and then come from a place that, you know, of what your vision is to me has been the way in which I've approached everything. And it also is much more fun. It's much more, um, much more collaborative. You know, it's a positive experience, which I think translates to the screen. That's my favorite comment when people say I can feel the love through the screen. That's like my favorite thing when someone can say that. Yeah, my my daughter told me yesterday, she goes, you better tell Angela that I watched Blue's Clues Every day when I was a kid, I said, I will, I will mention that because she lived on Blue's Clues. She wasn't a Sesame Street kid. She was Blue's Clues kid. I was more of Mr. Rogers kid. I wasn't, you know, Sesame Street was okay. But Mr. Rogers, that was, that was what I watched when I was a kid. Um, probably my favorite character on there was probably the king because I, I like the fact that you know, you know he would Mister Rogers would take us on the trolley ride into the new kingdom and then the little king would show up. I thought that was the coolest thing of all. So I grew up with that. Um, but Blue's Clues is on a whole different level. Um, it's even for me, it's almost hard to explain how magnificent that show really is because you you took children's television and raised the bar i don't even think it's been equaled yet <laughs> oh oh that's that thank you that is so nice we talked about blues clues is a string along narrative with that question that we're answering at the top and that ability to play as you um and and practice skills as you're trying to answer that question and i think some other show you know there's like magazine format or shorter attention span and it really depends on who you are as a viewer and how you learn everyone learns in a different way and so we just you know we tried to bridge that gap of what that what mr rogers gave us what the you know the play 
feeling that gives you and the ability to say, look, you really, you know, you can do anything you want to do if you use your mind and take a step at a time and I'm going to show you and prove it. Right. So, yes, there was a lot of love. There's still a lot of love in Blue's Clues. Well, one of your chapters in Life's Clues was taking a moment to play. I'm like you. I'm type A. Now, I love to work. Sometimes I think my work is play. But the chapter in your book really put play in a whole different perspective. And I literally had to sit there, take a moment. Of course, it's another chapter of taking the moment. But I had to take a moment (laughs) on the whole play thing because I was like, I'm guilty. You know, sometimes maybe I do need to, to get up and actually play play beyond enjoying the work that I do. And, and like you said in the book, it, well, it, it, can, be, it can help us be more creative. It, it rests our mind. It gets our mind off things that are stressful. And uh, how often should an adult take time out to play? Every day, I, I think a little bit every day. I, I really think that it's important for our brain to take that to take that break and to laugh and to be silly and to know that it's okay that you're not being childlike or throw, you know, I'm not telling people to go throw themselves on the floor and have a tantrum and be a kid. But the idea to like, because that's what sometimes people think when I say we need to have that child view and that child perspective. But the idea that you can, um, you, you can just kind of be a little bit more playful in the way in which you're getting information or the way in which you're working, something that gets you up in the morning that you're excited about doing, and then being able to say, okay, I can step outside for a minute if possible. And it's hard. It's hard for all of us to find all the amount of minutes that we need in a day. Um, but it, it is amazing to me every time how much it sharpens the saw. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to I'm really going to have to reread that chapter and start practicing some of those things. Uh I'm guilty of being one that may not take enough time out to play because I think what I'm doing for me is actually playing because I enjoy it so much. But we do need to kind of step away sometimes and just kind of it allows us to regenerate and maybe even give us new ideas. Uh also in your book you said you know, we, that we need to be uh, taking a moment in our day to save ourselves, well, to save us from ourselves and others. What do you mean by that? So that it's kind of like taking a pause, right? It's that meant that those four beats are so important to kind of get, as you said, collect your thoughts and to really think through um, how to push the conversation further. And it is, and, and when I talk about taking a moment for ourselves, it is that we do so much for everybody else and we're constantly thinking about all of the things that we need to do that's for everybody else. And at least my generation, I feel, we grow up feeling so guilty about doing anything that has a, that's a little bit more self-motivated and that's for us. And I think it's, again, it's, it's watering the plant, you know, it's like being out in the sun, like we just need it for our growth. Um, and it doesn't have to be laborious. It doesn't have to be, I'm not saying go and take a vacation for 10 days. It's like just, you know, taking that moment, um, whether you meditate, whether you're just taking a walk, whether you're calling a friend, like anything that just fills you up, uh, is important. Because of all the work that you have done with children, uh, you've studied 
children. One of the chap one of your life's clues was how to handle disappointment. And I, I think your book is a perfect handbook for young parents. You know, when we have kids, we're not given a manual. You know, we have to figure out on our own or we basically follow on follow the same rules in which, you know, we grew up with. And sometimes that can be a mistake, uh, especially if someone grew up in a, in, in a bad household. But your book is a perfect book for young parents. And, and now I think that there is actually a manual out there that goes further and not only, well, in a way, yeah, raising our kids correctly. And I think in today's time, you know, everybody wants to get a, they want to hand out participation trophies, but I think we can learn from disappointment, but you focused on how to handle it from a child's point of view that also helps us as adults. Uh, you know, it's just a moment in time. It's not forever. And with kids, you know, how did, how did you figure out because with television being a which is a major media to get well to get the message out you know what is your concept of handling disappointment especially with children yeah it was actually the very first episode i wrote for daniel tiger's neighborhood that that idea that we see kids like it's a question that parents ask all the time and we see kids um, you know, being very invested in the problem, the disappointment or the anger or whatever is happening, right? They're very invested in that as, you know, that's what they call the terrible twos or the threes, you know, they have that. And how do we switch that so that they're as invested on the solution to that problem, labeling the emotion, understanding that it's okay to feel this way. And of course you do, you know, having them internalize that and be able to understand that and then try to pivot it to say, okay, now what, what could we do now? How do we, you know, when you're ready, we're ready to kind of turn it around. And so we did it through Daniel Tiger um, in a very specific way. And to give kids that strategy of when something seems bad, turn it around and find something good. And that again is something that we need as adults as well, right? It's so, life is so disappointing. There's every day, there's something that didn't go your way. And what we do with that, and there's so much research on resilience and persistence. And, you know, when it comes to our kids' mental health and our mental health, it's a muscle that we just have to continue to use so that we're ready if, God forbid, there's something bigger that happens that we then need to revert back to those tools to help us get through it. And I, and I like the way you put the silver lining into that chapter with disappointment that we need to take time to find the good in it. So, and I still laugh when I think about this, that yes, a smushed cake still tastes good. <laughs> yeah. Right? It does. Yeah. I literally had to use that over the holidays because my cake was smushed and I was like, oh and, my God. And I think now that, you know, if a disappointment comes along in life, I'm probably going to have to put that that thought and that analogy into my mind. Like, well, a smushed cake still tastes good. So try to find something good in a disappointment, which then lessens, well, in a way lessens the impact of the disappointment and helps us to move on, which leads me into I think one of the strongest chapters in Life's Clues is why is failure the essential prerequisite for success? 
Oh, so many reasons, right? There's, it's much stickier. You know, all of the problems are, and the failures are what we remember probably the most. And we don't take a minute to celebrate the positive stuff. But the idea that you're failing at something, and if you have the ability to fail safely um, and not, you know, cause any sort of uh, negative response, you're going to learn, you're, you're going to literally focus in on what it is that you did wrong and practice that again. And so that ability to have that resi resilience and to understand what you're doing, how you're doing it, what it means, whatever it is that you're doing wrong, whether it's you're a kid and you're doing a math problem wrong and you need to practice that again, or whether you've had a really bad conversation with somebody that you want to go back to and own up to. It's like you just get another turn. You get another time to practice it. Um, and you're going to learn way more than if you just kind of breeze through life without any sort of disappointment or failure or, you know, any of those things, because then you don't even know there's no barometer for your own success. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think some of life's biggest lessons are in the failures, maybe the disappointments, and we learn from them. That's where we gain wisdom. You can't gain wisdom if everything goes your way all the time. And you can't really mature that way. So there is a silver lining in disappointments and failures. Uh, and, and I love, I, I'm the type of person that loves things that uh, are inspirational, motivational, encouraging, uh, kind of using those things to kind of light the fire uh, within us uh, to do great things or extraordinary things uh, or even accomplish something, uh, whatever it could be. But too many people today, they sit around waiting on opportunities to come to them. And your book explained it perfectly. Why is it important for us to create our opportunities? You know, there are so many parables about this too. It's that feeling that we need to know what we want. We need to be able to have that ability to dream, right? Which comes from kids and imagination and, you know, being exposed to so many things that they get to try and see what they love. But if we don't see it um, and we don't dream it and we don't believe it, we're not going to be able to get what it is that we want. And I think what's fascinating to me is that like, I didn't know anybody in media. I didn't know anyone in TV. Um, I got tons of negative responses when I said, you know, I think I want to create a show like Mr. Rogers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know? And so you just have to kind of be able to say it and be, you know, whether it's in your head or outside in order to then figure out what the steps are to go to get what it is that you want. And maybe you don't get there, but you're going to get close and that's going to make you happier. You know, you're going to be able to continue to practice or do or say, but if you don't really, if you're not able to open your own doors, if you're constantly waiting for everyone else to open the door, it just might never open. That's exactly right. Um, I believe there's a time to wait. But in many cases, especially in media, in, in the position you're in, the position I'm in, there are many times where we probably have to create our own opportunities. You don't sit around and wait. You know, you just have to move forward and in a way push the envelope a bit. What would be your best example uh, that uh, you could share with us in which you created your own, your own opportunity? You know, I actually remember being right out of college and had gotten a name of somebody from Nickelodeon. I called 
I think I called, this was before email, anything, right? Called every single day, called every single day. Uh, and there was a point where she just stopped calling me back, right? And I was like, oh God, what is happening? Call, call, call. So then I de- did a detour, right? And I took a uh, an internship at a production company. And then because of that internship and that production company got reintroduced to Nickelodeon, got into the research department uh, through an interview process, through all of that, through in that like detour way. And I remember sitting there in my cubicle and the woman that I called a million times walks by and she's like, how did you get here? And I was thinking in my head, not because of you, but, you know, know, it's like one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is a dead end. You know, what do I do? How do I do it? How do I prove myself? You know, and it felt like you were taking a detour was going to be a problem, but yet, you know, you're able to kind of jump through certain things. So it's just, again, it's one of those things where just being creative and imaginative just kind of pays off. Do you think today that many people give up too quickly? Of course I do. I think that there's a lot that we do, whether it's snowplow parenting or helicopter parenting or, you know, even a very strong disciplinarian, like it stops, it stops people or stops kids from wanting to try. And then we grow up to be adults who don't necessarily think we deserve what it is that we want. And so I think that's, it's really important for us to just try to pivot that thinking. Yeah, I think if a child is told no too many times, they're going to be afraid to step out of their comfort zone. And then we'll never see them blossom. Yeah, they'll believe it, right? That they they shouldn't, they don't deserve that. Um, And it's, you know, I think that's probably one of the saddest things. And so I think through the media is the way in which that I've constantly tried to give those messages both to kids and then subtly to parents about, you know, through Daniel Tiger's parents or teacher Harriet or the way Steve and Josh and Joe like looked to the camera and were able to talk back and, you know, listen attentively. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, I think all kids deserve. Now, Blue's Clues was more of problem solving and then Daniel's Tiger was more of what? How to overcome life's disappointments? Yeah, socio, socio-emotional skills, right? All the things that you need before you even enter kindergarten. You know, you need to know how to share. You need to know how to collaborate. You need to know how to um, sit and listen when you need to sit and listen. Like there's so many little dealing with disappointment, being able to label emotions um, and then figure out how to, you know, move through them. You know, in Daniel, we've had, we have a, a mad strategy that Fred also, of course, also inspired in the sense of um, when you feel so mad, you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four. And I heard that kids are t- teaching their parents how to do that and reciting that strategy. And I, that's one of my favorite stories. Wow. You know, you grew up watching Mr. Rogers. You end up being this creative juggernaut in children's television. You've raised the bar really high. And then you get invited by Fred Rogers to go to Pittsburgh and to go on set and watch them tape Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What was that particular feeling like when you hear you are as a child watching it on television, being successful in between, and then going on set for the very first time to see how they did it? What was that like? Yeah, that was, um, that was mind blowing. It was, um, you know, people were making such a big deal 
because of Blue's Clues and we had just, you know, we had just launched and found success. And I was like, shh, this is Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And they were shooting the, um, the scenes of, in his house where he's, you know, leaning in and talking to the audience. And everyone said, oh, I bet you wanted to see the neighborhood of make-believe. That's so much fun with all the puppets. I said, yes, but this is... This is why I loved Fred. This part is the one that I would want to be here for. Um, and so being there in the audience for real as he's saying those things was just one of my all-time favorite, again, moments. <laughs> Did, you know, being on set with him and watching them tape, did you pick up anything new while being there in person? You know, I think that um, his ability to be the same person off screen that he was on screen was one of those things that stuck with me, right? Like it is always such a, you know, gamble when you meet somebody that you've held to such high esteem and yet realizing that he is that person who has a mission and a vision and a point of view and still pauses, you know, inherently when he talks to you in person and all of those things. And I remember thinking the way it changed me was I knew for Blue's Clues that we were hiring actors because it was a green screen shoot. It was difficult. They weren't necessarily. But for Daniel Tiger, I said, we had to animate it because we're never going to find a Fred. You know, like Fred is born. He's not someone we're going to find or hire. Like, and I'm sure there are people out there whose, you know, life mission is to do this as well. But there's, to me, it was only one Fred. And so it kind of changed the, um, the course of what we did for the legacy property. Well, that makes perfect sense. I don't think there's ever going to be another Fred Rogers. You know, and like you said, how rare is it to see someone on television? You know, they always say, don't meet your heroes. But in this case, he was no different in front of the camera and behind. He was the same person. Yeah, that's amazing, right? So wonderful. I mean, obviously he had an ability to talk to kids and then he talked to adults on an adult level. It's not that he talked to you like you were a child. He's very, very brilliant. But that, um, again, that respect he has for people is what came through. Yeah, amen to that. Well, which is more important, knowledge or imagination? Oh, God. Um, I don't know. I think you need both. I do. I think you need an imagination and through the imagination, you're going to, you're going to learn. Uh, so maybe that's the, that's the answer in terms of, yes, it's great to know everything, have knowledge, have a high IQ, but if you can't apply it um, and you, you know, then you're not going to get very far. Well, you know, your career proved that both are important. You gain the knowledge by going to college understanding children and all the way that they think and do. And then you applied your imagination to enhance all of that. And not too many people know how to use both at the same time, but you do. Thank you. It is fun. It does feel like playing for me too. <laughs> well, you know, you give a great example in the in the book, Life's Clues. You know, what is the importance of disconnecting from technology? I don't think we realize how much um, brain power it takes for us to uh, quit that quickly in, you know, it digest the information that we're getting in social media and technology and computers and just literally the way our brain needs to process all of that information as fast as we do it and how much we multitask and um, all of that. I don't know if you remember, but being on Zoom 
24-7 back when we had to be. I remember being dizzy when it, when I would stop because you just like, oh my God, you know, so much sensory information. And I think if you're little, especially, and then of course at our own age, as I just said, like I feel like you, it's just too much. And so you need to process and digest and be in the real world in order to then, you know, turn everything that you've kind of ingested into something positive. And if not, you know, it's also, there's such a a hard thing to do in terms of watching all the social media and trying to understand how your what your life is like versus how curated social media looks. Yeah, I, I think we need to stop living by the algorithm. <clears throat> right? Yeah. It's harder to do. Yeah, you you mentioned that you have a friend of yours. You mentioned it in the book where they literally took a whole month off from technology. Did you try that? I have not done a full month, no, um, but I, de I definitely see the benefits when I do unplug for, you know, the weekend or a week. Um, but yes, I think that Tracy, my, my friend who can do that, uh, she just comes back roaring, you know, she comes back with so much more energy than I think we have when we don't do it. You know, it just kind of depletes us and she has, you know, comes back with all these ideas. Yeah, you know, it sounds great in theory. I don't know if I could survive a month. Um, I mean, I was saying when I was reading your book, I was sitting there going, could I do a whole month without technology? Yeah, I'm thinking, in all honesty, the answer would be no. I think I would literally go crazy, but I understand because I've read research where they say if you go camping for 72 hours without technology, you're literally resetting your brain back to normal because now you know if you're camping you're supposedly sleeping in a sleeping bag sleeping on the ground so the electromagnetic field from the earth really resets our senses and our brain so we're just not so rattled because i think with laptops and cell phones like you said sitting on zoom forever how many people on zoom are actually staring at their cell phone and not paying attention on zoom well and also just staring at yourself right there's that camera there that is like you know, it's just so much information that you're trying to really focus on the conversation. And yet you're, you know, there's just like so much visual that uh, is distracting. It's yeah. hard. One, one of the, uh, and this is really the last question here, which I found in your book, um, eye-opening, very interesting. And it's really got me to think because... In your book, you state that we should always say hello and we should always say goodbye. Why? It's respect. It's there's a saying goodbye is a um, it's a respect issue in the sense of honoring the time that you were together and not even having to make up time for when you're going to see each other again, just honoring that time and saying goodbye and giving a minute to process that goodbye. And for kids, they need more than a minute, right? If you've ever tried to leave a party or leave anywhere with a child, it takes them, you know, 30 minutes to just get out the door. Um, so it's easier for parents to just kind of leave without saying anything, potentially, if they're being dropped off at a birthday party or something. But it doesn't honor and respect um, that, that, you know, that child and even that person. If you've ever had somebody just leave, you're just like, wait, um, it, it's hurtful. It's hard. It's a self-esteem issue, I guess, is what I'm saying as well. Yeah. It's something that will fill you up. 
you know, I thought, you know, when I was reading that chapter, I'm thinking, okay, I have so many adult friends that will that will not say goodbye. They'll just they'll use the excuse and say, "I'll I'll see you next time," because for them, goodbye is final. But in a way, in your book, you explain where goodbye is not really final. It's it you know it's putting the bookends together, and it's a respectful thing. And I think with children. I think you explained it absolutely perfectly, and your book is a must for all ages to read. Thank you so much. That means a lot. You know, and ladies and gentlemen, I will say this. I believe it was Sherlock Holmes that said it's elementary, but Angela Centomero's new book, Life's Clues, is more than elementary. It is perfect. It's easy to read. It's an easy to read roadmap. Let's be real. It's an easy to read roadmap to improve your own life from the relationships that, well, that stand in front of you that maybe you're ignoring. It's a book that will ignite your stagnant dreams because now you'll be able to see all the clues that she mentions in the book that'll help you see the clues in your own life that, well, maybe they've been trying to get your attention. Once you read Life's Clues, those clues in your own life will now have your attention. I love this book. Look, I give it five stars, or maybe I should say I should give it five blue paws. But Life's (laughs) Clues is the perfect way to kick off 2024. And Angela, I want to thank you so much for sharing your brand new book with us. Uh, A little bit of behind the scenes with Blue's Clues and the other incredible television Uh, children's television that you have created and just sharing this expertise and insight with us today. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for watching and listening. And remember, you can catch all the replays of our interviews on the Dr. Ward Bond Show online platforms, as well as Bond on Cinema for all of you filmmakers and producers. And as for me, well, I'll say goodbye for now, but I'll see you next time.